are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. This week, I am asking for help from you guys, my loyal listeners. To continue to grow this podcast, I really need to have a larger presence on Apple Podcasts. So I am requesting that anyone who listens on that platform or has access to it to kindly leave me a review or even just a rating to help boost the podcast on the Apple platform. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. As with many things these days, ratings seem to help more than anything else. Today, I am interviewing Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Her first novel is Finding Mrs. Ford, and it debuted in 2019. She divides her time between the Northeast and Florida, where she writes, reads, watches lots of movies, and spends time with her family. In an earlier life, Deborah was an actress in film and television and a story editor at Miramax Films. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Deborah Royce. Welcome, and thanks for joining me on my podcast. I'm excited you are here, and I look forward to talking about Finding Mrs. Ford. How are you today? I'm doing very well. It's a gorgeous day in Connecticut, sunny and bright. Houston's the same way, a little warm, but very pretty. So let's get started, and let's talk about Finding Mrs. Ford. Tell me a little bit about it, please. Finding Mrs. Ford is a thriller. It's really an exploration of a woman's identity. I'm fascinated with identity as a whole. Who are people? What do they reveal? But far more interestingly, what do they conceal? So it's a story of a woman in, you know, the middle of her life. She's in her mid-50s. She's a woman of means and comfort and wealth in a beautiful seaside resort community called Watch Hill, Rhode Island. It's on the Atlantic Ocean, you know, 45 minutes from Newport. Picture Newport if you don't know Watch Hill. And it's a sunny August day in 2014, which is important. And the FBI comes to see her to ask her, about an Iraqi Chaldean man whose name is Sami Fakuri, and she claims not to know him. And they say, <coughs> excuse me, well, that's a little funny because we just picked him up getting off a plane from Baghdad to Boston and in a car on his way to your house. This is right at the moment when ISIS is marching into Mosul and that whole region in the north of Iraq, and they're killing quite a lot of people, including the Iraqi Chaldeans, who happen to be Catholic. So at this point, you go back to 1979, and you meet her as a college student in Michigan, suburban Detroit, and she takes, you know, a perfectly nice summer job at a perfectly nice ladies' boutique, and she meets Annie Nelson. And Annie is wild and glamorous and little, um, a little bit of a daredevil. And together, these two girls become friends. And in about a month, Annie has her big idea that they quit their nice, respectable jobs and they go down the road to the edge of Detroit and get jobs in a fairly questionable disco, which happens to be populated by Iraqi Chaldean men. So you know very early on in the book that she must be lying. And then you spend the rest of the book figuring out what is she hiding? What happened when they met in 1979? Why would he look for her all those years later? Because it's a pretty long time. And why lie? Why not just say, yeah, I know the guy. I was not familiar with the Iraqi Chaldeans. Because you're not from Detroit. I'm going to tell you that right now. In the United States of America, there are a lot of Chaldeans in Detroit 
and in Southern California near San Diego. So the Chaldeans came to Detroit for work the same way that everybody did. And they have owned a lot of the groceries in the city of Detroit. They're a very proud presence in Detroit. In 1980, the uh, mayor of Detroit, Coleman Young, gave the keys to the city of Detroit to Saddam Hussein. Is it a population that still lives in Iraq also? Well, yes, they live in the north of Iraq, and they were very much in the news in the summer of 2014 when I started working on this book. And it's really the reason I decided to make Sammy Chaldean. I thought the book is not really a geopolitical thriller, but I love having a little bit of a geopolitical underpinning because I think it sets a context for a personal story in the greater sweep of history. And I, I really enjoy those stories that have more to them than just relationships. I mean, I'm all about relationship stories, sense of community, but I think when you also learn something about a group of people or a community or even a location, it adds a lot to the story. Yes. So I love exactly what you just said, a sense of place. I went to a talk a couple of years ago, a luncheon at the New York Public Library, and Zadie Smith and Jeffrey Eugenides, who's from Detroit, spoke with the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick, and the theme of the talk was a sense of place. So any place in Finding Mrs. Ford, whether it's Watch Hill, Rhode Island, or New York City, or anywhere around Detroit, is correct. I use the name of a street or I use the exact distance from one place to another. I think it's a lot more fun for a reader to think, well, I've been there. I could go there. No, I agree completely. And fun for you when you get to do the research to visit these places and and map it all out. Um, So we've talked a little bit about this, but how did you come up with the subject matter for your book? I had met a particular girl when I was younger who was really dazzling, that kind of Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, completely incandescent person. I've met other people like that too. I'm intrigued by how those friendships are formed, how two opposite people become friends. But I think making a friend is as magical and mysterious as as falling in love and getting married. You know, you can go somewhere and your friend will say, oh, you're really going to love so-and-so. And you might like her and, you know, she's nice, but you might not connect. But then I've, I have found through the course of my life, I always connect with the unexpected one on, on a level that other people just couldn't understand. So that's at the foundation of the book, the friendship between Susan and Annie. I was also interested in, as I said, this concept of identity. I've had a life like everybody else. I've met people who were not always who they seem to be. So how does that happen? I like to ask that question. It is interesting how There's the presentational self and the self who's behind it. So that's really at the core of the book. I I realize that is so true, that you can know someone on some level, but maybe never really know everything that's happening um, in their mind or when you're not around them or whatever it may be. Well, I think if you live long enough, you will experience that over and over. And I'm not a cynical person and I'm not a paranoid person and I'm a trusting person There's a scene in my book 
where Susan Ford, the mature lady from Watch Hill, meets her stepson in New York City, and he drags her to a dinner downtown at this trendy restaurant, Balthazar. And there's this really obnoxious English woman there, whom I've called Isabel, who is rude to her and overly fawning with her stepson. And she, our heroine, sits back observing this, and she can see that her stepson isn't really reading the tea leaves very clearly. He doesn't really understand that this woman is trouble. That was based on something that happened 20 years ago when I was going through a divorce and my first husband, we were at the end, I was grieving. He hadn't quite left. And one night he said, I'm going to dinner in New York. And I very pathetically said, oh, can I come? He said, fine. So off we went to this dinner in New York with a very obnoxious British woman, and she brought an entourage. She was rude to me, dismissive of me. I had to call myself Deborah. She called me Debbie over and over through the dinner, kind of pointedly, asked if she could take my husband to the bar. Uh, away from the table, she and her entourage stood up and left and left us with the check. And I thought, wow, she is bad news. And my husband, who was having his midlife crisis, could not see this. He didn't get involved with her. It was a passing thing. That was Ghislaine Maxwell, that woman who was turned out to be very involved with Jeffrey Epstein. And all these years later, when I read about her, I thought, my instincts are right. She was trouble. Well, I always love to talk about book covers and book titles. Obviously, the title, Finding Mrs. Ford, makes perfect sense for your story. But was that your starting title? Or how did you all come up with that title? And then tell me about the cover, too. That was not the starting title. I had a horrible starting title. It was so bad. I wanted to... (laughs) encapsulate everything that the book was about. So I called it, um, oh gosh, slumming to the left, passing on the right. I wanted to get into that concept of social mobility. My characters go into this disco world, which by all accounts you would perceive as being beneath them. It's a dangerous, dark world. And That term slumming is a very unattractive term, but I think it really says what it means. And then this concept of passing, how do people rise, uh, grow into different roles? Anyway, it was cumbersome, it was awkward, it was horrible. My agent for a long while wanted to call it Watch Hill, which is the name of the place where many things happen. I understand why she wanted to call it that. It it could have sort of a spooky place name like... uh, Lookout Mountain or Cape Fear, that, you know, ominous. But we, my husband and I, my wonderful husband I'm married to now, not the man I was married to in that other story. My husband and I are members of the Watch Hill community. And he said, oh, we'll get run out of town if we call that much attention to Watch Hill. So for me, identity. It was my stepdaughter who said, why don't you call the book Mrs. Jack Ford? And I loved that because I find the title of Mrs. puts a little bit of a distance between you and the other person. Very few of us 
I mean, I didn't get on today and we're not calling each other Mrs. This or Mrs. That. It's, it's a distancer and it's a little bit opaque. So finding Mrs. Ford, I like the alliterative quality of it. And I like the idea that you really are looking for this person and figuring out what she's hiding. And I love that title, Desperately Seeking Susan. So all those ways led me to finding Mrs. Ford. Now the cover. I had had a cover vision in the years I was working on it of her, Mrs. Ford, in her striped shirt and her white jeans, standing in Watch Hill, looking away from you at the lighthouse with her two dogs on leash. We could not execute it in a way that looked sophisticated. It looked like a Nancy Drew book. It looked like a, <laughs> a middle of the 20th century young adult novel. We just could not get it. Like you wanted and, it to look. Right. I love titles with, with figures in them, but uh, Beatrice Williams does it. That book Montauk did it. But I don't know who illustrates that or how they do it to get it to look just so, but it's a very hard thing to do. So the hydrangea came, it got very Byzantine for a while. Like what if you had the hydrangea on the front and the disco ball on the back? That was too complicated. Then we had a cover with a hydrangea looking like the prettiest thing you'd ever seen. It was too pure and like a painting. Finally, the hydrangea now is looming down from the top of the book. And that question mark necklace is snaking through the petals, partly obscuring the letters and dangling there. So I think it looks pretty, but off. Pretty, but a little, you, you can tell something's wrong. An inspiration for that would have been Leanne Moriarty. I think she achieves that in some of her titles. She and does. Yeah. No, I agree. And covers are hard. And it's nice that you that you had a say in it and then you were able to then execute what you wanted. And sometimes it just takes a little while. It does. And for my next book, Ruby Falls, uh, the cover is a rose. We haven't revealed it, but it's a slightly rotten, slightly falling apart rose that's coming down and one petal is falling. We tried tipping letters with Ruby Falls, but apparently that's an indicator of comedy, not of, I thought it was tension. I, I thought it was destabilizing, but my daughter picked that out. And then I was told by an editor, no, 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 don't tip the letters. So it's quite pretty. Now that you're saying that, that actually makes sense. Because if I think about comedy, you do see that sometimes. So that makes sense. Well, good. Well, that's exciting. Well, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I would love to hear about your earlier career and um, just tell us a little bit about it, please. Great question. So I went to college for French and Italian literature and history, studied in France, but I was at a very small girls' college, women's college in Ohio. So I always acted in plays and I was a dance minor. A movie came to town, to Cleveland, with Frank Langella and Tom Hulse, a big studio picture, and I auditioned and was cast as a background dancer. So I falsely perceived that this was a piece of cake, which was a good thing and a bad thing. So I came to New York the next year when I finished college to audition for the choreographer of that film for uh, uh, in a Broadway theater, and I wasn't cast. 
And I spent about a year in New York really pursuing dance, really going to dance classes all day, every day, auditioning for everything. And I got close to a lot of Broadway shows, but I just wasn't good enough. And that writing was on the wall after a year to me. And I thought, well, before I do something else, I had this idea. <laughs> I was very naive, you know, because I'd studied some languages a little bit that I could just waltz into Georgetown School of Foreign Service. So it was there is this fantasy, very silly backup plan, which Georgetown may not have even had me had I tried to show up. But it was there. And I thought, well, I will give acting a try before I go to that backup plan. And I had much better luck. I got an agent right away. I started booking commercials. I ended up dancing in several commercials, Coca-Cola and bacon-flavored Cheetos, which you've never heard of because it's a failed product. And within a year, I was cast as Erica Kane's sister on All My Children. And they gave the sister this ridiculous name, Silver Kane. And it was kind of a fun storyline. They took the storyline from a 1940s movie called All About Eve uh, with uh, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter and a teeny cameo with Marilyn Monroe about a shy, seemingly shy, mousy girl who becomes the assistant of a big star and bit by bit tries to take over her life. So that was my storyline with Susan Lucci and her character, Erica. And I did that for a year and it was really draining because my character became more and more disturbed. And on a soap opera, you're really playing that part 12 hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. So I was written out after a year and within a few months, Paramount Pictures flew me out to Hollywood for a screen test, which it was felt so grand to me. I think they gave me a coach uh, airplane ticket, and they put me up in the Hollywood Holiday Inn, and I just thought, wow, this is snazzy. And <clears throat> they did have a driver pick me up and bring me to the Paramount lot, which looks just like you can imagine it. And it's in my next book, Ruby Falls, because my character is an, a soap opera actress who becomes a film actress. And I got the part. And it was a pilot with Christopher Lloyd, if you remember him from Back to the Future. Definitely. And that was not picked up, but I did see how much more work there was in Los Angeles, so I moved out there. Well, is there anything else I ha we haven't talked about that you'd like to tell me before we wrap up? Oh, gosh, I think, well, uh, Ruby Falls comes out next May. That is also a psychological thriller, and it is really a love letter to the Daphne du Maurier book and the Hitchcock film, Rebecca. And it's about a little girl named Ruby who's abandoned in Ruby Falls Cave in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when she's six years old. Her father just leaves her there while the lights are off. Uh, she grows up to be an actress. Her father never reappears. And she's on a soap opera and is written out under somewhat questionable circumstances. She takes off for Europe and she marries a man spontaneously that she's just met. And he's very dashing. His name is Orlando Montague. And they go on a honeymoon to Rome. They are about to go in the catacombs. And she, as you can imagine, has an attack of claustrophobia. 
And she knows she should probably tell this stranger husband that she has about this thing that happened to her as a kid, but she doesn't. So she starts her marriage with a secret. They move to LA, find a perfect cottage in the Hollywood Hills. He's perfect. Life's perfect. And she's cast in a remake of Rebecca, which one is coming out this year, a Netflix one, which I didn't know about. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yes. As she starts playing this role, her husband Orlando starts to get a little weird and you and she start to realize that maybe she's not the only person with a secret or two in her marriage. So that's Ruby Falls. That he's not all that he seems. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. Well, I always like to wrap up. My last question is tell me about a book or two that you would like to recommend and a recent read that stuck with you that you'd like to tell our listeners about. I recently went on a Zoe Heller binge. I had not read Zoe Heller. And she wrote, uh, I had to write this down. What was she thinking? Notes on a Scandal. If you saw that movie, I think it was with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett, maybe. But she deals with identity stuff. And the other one I read was The Believers about, uh, so Notes on a Scandal, let me go back. It's about um, kind of, as the British would say, a posh lady who takes a job as a teacher and ends up having an affair with a student. And it's told from the point of view of this other teacher who is fixated on the posh teacher. And it is very strange and disturbing where this all goes. And The Believers is about uh, a family. And each member of the family is a bit of a zealot in his or her belief in, in their political party or their religion or one thing or another. So it's a fascinating setup within this family. And I also read Blue Nights, which I adored by Joan Didion. It's this book that comes after um, the year of magical thinking after her daughter dies. And it just tore my heart out. Those all three, three sound fascinating. I've heard of the believers, but I, and I know Joan Didion, but I have not heard at all of the first one. I'll have to check all three of them out. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. I loved hearing all about finding Mrs. Ford and look forward to your next novel also. Thank you so very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page and tell all of your friends about the podcast. I would really appreciate it. Deborah's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Susie Leopold of Susie Approved Book Tours and Reviews for connecting Deborah with me, and thanks to KB Regan for the sound editing. And I hope to see you next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.